0: You're listening to Messy Jesus Business, a podcast about radical gospel living. Hi everyone. I'm Sister Julia Walsh, a writer, spiritual director, and jail minister living in Chicago. Welcome to The Mess. At Messy Jesus Business, we explore how the mess of radical gospel living brings disciples into a life of struggle as we advocate for social justice, live simply, serve others, practice contemplation, and live in community. And now on to our guest. Jennifer Grant is the author of six books for adults, including Love You More, The Divine Surprise of Adopting My Daughter. Her latest, Dimming the Day, features reflections on nature as night falls. She has also authored a number of children's books. In addition to writing books, Jennifer works as an editor and editorial consultant and curates the Faith and Food page for CompassionateChristianity.org. Jennifer received her master's degree in English literature and concentrations in fiction writing and critical theory from Southern Methodist University in Dallas. She is a member of the 2030 Collaboratives Faith-Based Coalition for Global Nutrition, a founding member of Inc., a creative collective, and she served on the board for GenderNation.org. In this episode of Messy Jesus Business, we talk about how the call to serve can be felt both internally and externally, and the importance of staying focused on the spirit of the call and the work itself. We discuss her work, including her latest book, and how she discerns which projects are right for her. And we contemplate her faith journey, how writing about faith for children has helped her have fresh eyes when looking at God's work in the world. Lastly, we consider how nature can bridge divides among humanity, and we explore the mess of being a writer. Enjoy! Welcome to Messy Jesus Business, Jennifer Grant. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. And I of course like i do with all my guests would like to jump right into the story of jennifer <laughs> the story of jen <laughs> which i know bits and pieces of and uh there's a lot of things i admire about you i know you as a person who has produced a lot of books but you're also really supportive to other writers and building up writing community and you're a working mom and balancing family and you've written about motherhood so you've you've had a lot of a lot of different hats and roles and and ways that you give and serve. And so I'm wondering how it became clear to you in the midst of all that, that you were meant to be an author. Hmm.
1: Well, I always expressed myself and asked questions of the world and of myself and of God through writing. So um, it feels like a really natural fit. I have, you know, old notebooks and folders full of stories that I wrote when I was really even, you know, five and six years old. So I've been sort of navigating the world this way through words and story for as long as I can remember. So, and through school, throughout school, I always loved to read and I loved to write. And I had encouragement from different teachers, including this wonderful, I had a um, teacher in seventh grade who just would write these little encouraging compliments on the papers I wrote for her. And I still have them. And this woman is someone who lives locally and continues to support my writing by coming to book events and always buying my book for for people in her network. And so I feel like I have these through lines of people and events that have encouraged me in my work. And I feel really grateful for that. So it felt sort of like an easy choice to, to focus on writing and editing. Cause it's what I've always loved to do.
0: Mm. I'm just really hearing how for you discernment of vocation was internal. Like you recognize some, there was an affection for it. There was a resonance, but at the other hand, the community and others were mirroring back to you and encouraging this for you. So do you understand vocation as something that's both internal and external call? Yeah, definitely. And, and, and I'm sure you can relate to this as a writer yourself, but
1: it's such a solitary endeavor when we sit down to write anything, whether it's a short article or a book or, you know, an essay, a review, anything, a blog post. And so in a way, you know, sort of the challenge that I still grapple with from time to time is being internally driven, you know, to this vocation and trusting that this is what I was made to do, but also kind of, we always want people to validate externally what we're doing. You know, we it feels good when someone writes a positive review or says that they loved your book or whatever. And so I'm always trying to navigate that in a healthy way, like not, not depend upon those external compliments and things, but also to hear them when they come, because it can be an encouragement when it's a long day or a long week or a long month of writing. And if I can remember that, you know, what I've written in the past has meant something to someone that can keep me going and kind of energize me and give me a little bit of confidence when I'm lacking it.
0: Mm-hmm. I think what you're saying in there is so important for me to, to meditate on because I, in my journey into writing, have noticed how important it is to pay attention to the ego's role and resist the temptation for, to like climb the ladders or to achieve the greatest things and to just be rooted in what's the authentic call here. And, mm-hmm. and that that needs to come from an internal place, I think is what I've discovered more and more. But it's true that the community and the relationships with others can really support and foster that growth and, and that discernment. So how do you navigate that? Like, what are your tips for, for writers who are trying to, or other creative folks, people, you know, or anyone who's trying to, to, to work through the questions of, like, who, how God wants them to be in the world? How do we notice what when our motives are of God and when there, our motives may be impure? Mm-hmm. Well, I I have
1: seen in my own life, and also I do have a number of friends who are also writers and who have written multiple books. And I think I've, well, I've seen in the, the people who I consider close friends, a real departure from the way when we first started, you know, our egos were much more <laughs> involved and much more on the line, you know, and we really wanted to create something so great and you know be on Oprah's book club or you know all these kind of you know fancy splashy things yeah and what I've seen in the people who have continued in that vocation over you know five years ten years 20 years or longer increasingly just as you mature and also as you sort of take the hard knocks of you know having a book that you love not sell that much or have you know critical reviews that don't feel fair about something that you've written or all those things, not only does our skin get a little thicker and it, it, you know, it doesn't throw us to have negative words around, you know, something we've produced, but we also kind of trust that if we're telling the story we're meant to be telling, it's going to reach the person that it's meant to reach, you know, and our egos get smaller and smaller and smaller. And, and as you learn more and more about publishing and, and, how competitive it is, and how many titles are released every year, and how difficult it is for a book to find a huge readership. Then you sort of think, well, if this is the work I love that I, you know that I'm doing, and if my craft is growing, if I believe that my work is getting better, and I'm I am writing things that are more clear, more in touch with the spirit, you know, more um, of service to others, then you worry a lot less and think so much less about how it makes you look or, or whether it's some huge, uh, success or whatever. So I'm not saying I've totally gotten to the end of, you know, having those moments of like, you know, wishing for something that wasn't there. But my ego is so much, I sort of go to the next thing. You know, I write a book and go to the next next task and not, I don't worry over how the previous one will
0: be received. So I'm hearing a lot about freedom and trust. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What have you discovered about trusting in God and yourself and your own talent and your vocation and the freedom to do that? Mm -hmm. Well, again, I mean, I, I sort of, see
1: it as sort of a braided pathway, if that makes sense, but like of, of maturity and spiritual maturity and maturity as a person. And, you know, one hopes that as, you know, as you go through life and experience successes and failures or perceived successes, perceived failures. And also when you hear the stories of so many other people who are also doing the same kind of work, it gives you kind of an, a sense of being unattached, you know, like you're not attached to the You don't have these expectations or um, these hopes that that everything's riding on. Instead, you sort of trust. Like, all right, well, this person has come to me. You know, this has happened to me actually a number of times, and I feel very honored and flattered that this, and, and grateful for this. But I've had a number of times where a publisher has come to me and said would you be willing to write a book on this topic? And I think, well, that feels, I can definitely trust that they have a lot of people they can choose to, to ask to do this, this work. I had trust that the spirit brought us together, you know, so I will do my best in writing that book. That's that's actually true for this book we were speaking about before we started today, which is a book um, that comes out in, I think it's in March, 2022, right before Easter. And church published, Publishing for whom I've written some other books had asked, came to me and said, Would you write a book about prayer for children? And that wasn't a book that I had thought of writing before, but I thought, Wow, what a wonderful assignment. I'll, I'll trust that I'm the person that's meant to do this. And so I take that, I take my work really seriously. So I thought, Okay, I'm going to look at everything else that this publisher and other publishers have done for this age group. And I want mine to be new and fresh and to be you know, to serve the readers. And so it's, I I had to trust that I was meant to write this. So I should bring my unique take to it because I was chosen to do it.
0: Yeah. 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 That's beautiful. It's like trusting in the, the way the spirit is creating the partnerships and there's the synchronicity. Yeah. The the spirits involved for sure. And, Mm -hmm. and all creative work. And the title of that book is. That book is called sing,
1: wrestle, spin. Active prayers for children, or maybe it's prayers for active children. I don't remember that <laughs> what they they gave it the subtitle. Um, but it it has uh examples of many different ways that children, and their grownups can pray, but including singing, wrestling, and spinning.
0: <laughs> I love it. Yeah, that's going to be so fun. Oh, goodness. No, your most recent book that came out is called Dimming the Day, Evening Meditations for Quiet Wonder. Congratulations. Thank you. I've, I've been reading it, and just as you intended, I, for the most part, right before I go to bed, I'm reading a chapter, and it relaxes and relaxes me. helps me to doze off, I think, with a little a little more peace and quiet. And also I'm, I'm experiencing, it's such a gift to me because I am a person who struggles with insomnia and other sleep disorders. And so this book feels like it's responding to the need. And I'm wondering if you would like to talk a little bit about that book and, and your inspiration and, and your hopes for it. Sure. Yeah. Well, I, I actually had the idea for this book a few years ago and I
1: sort of jotted down some ideas and started doing some research about about anxiety and how people experience it and how people can address it and uh, it's you know that's sort of now uh every time you open any sort of periodical any kind of news site any kind of anything there'll be a lot of articles you know pointing to the fact that a lot of people experience anxiety right now and so instead of just naming the problem i thought what would be you know, what's one way that you can address it? At the same time, I sort of discovered this set of researchers who propose that experiencing wonder and awe, especially in nature, can actually address anxiety and can calm our spirit and can you know, help us to um, put aside our worries and put aside uh, our anxiety. And I do say in the introduction to this book that I'm talking about normal anxiety, the kind that can be addressed and by things like getting enough sleep or exercising or eating well or meditating. And I think the point needs to be made as well, that there is clinical anxiety that requires uh, someone to see a doctor, maybe go on medications and so on. So this book is really about addressing normal anxiety, but the publisher chose to publish it in March of 2020 is when I got the contract. So I started writing it right after that. And what an anxious time it was, you know, to to start writing this book, I was experiencing more anxiety and more sort of feelings of disconnection and confusion and all those things while trying to write this book. It actually did help me because I was reflecting on things that I find awe-inspiring and doing research about them and then trying to, um, in, in the book, there are many quotes and kind of excerpts from different novelists, poets, naturalists, and all the the... Uh, the curated content was, were things that calmed me. So the process of writing this book actually also served to sort of help me calm down in a very anxious time. So,
0: yeah. (laughs) Mm, mm. You know, you said that the idea kind of uh, came because two different things sort of lined up. Like you got curious and interested in the problem of anxiety in our, in our culture. And then at the same time you learned about how wonder and awe had its positive effects. I find that beautiful. And again, another moment of like the spirit at work, like lining things up, creating a little partnership and and you being receptive to that. But I'm wondering, you know, as a author of many books for both adults and children, how you go about discerning what creative projects you're meant to take on and focus on and which ones you sort of maybe just keep in the idea book for a while. Mm-hmm. Well, this, this is a good example with Dimming the
1: Day, you know, it was a it was an idea I had and I had the title actually from the beginning and often that's not the case. And, you know, as authors, we can't get too madly in love with our titles because a publisher might have something that's similar or might not like that title or their marketing folks might say that gives the wrong impression and it should be a different title. So, but when, as I was working on this and sort of gathering notes and research over the last few years, Then you know my file folder said "Dimming the Day," (laughs) and which is really irregular for me. Usually it would be maybe nature book or you know, you know evening quiet reflection book. But it felt like the time was right, you know, to bring it out again. It the reason why I took it out of the file folder and then submitted it through my agent to the editor is that um, in February of 2020, and this is the last time I gave a big in person talk, I was addressing a few hundred women who live in the Chicago era and who are part of this, I think they're Methodist, like a Methodist book club. Mm-hmm. And they had chosen one of my books, you know, for their book of the year to read together. And so when I went and spoke with them, I had this early chapter that I had written just when I was sketching out the idea for Dimming the Day. And it was the honey chapter. I don't know if you've read that chapter yet, mm-hmm. but it's about honeybees and how honey is produced. And I read that to them um, because I was talking about anxiety to this big group, and at the end of it, there was a book table, and I was signing books and and meeting people who had been atten- you know, in attendance, and probably two dozen people said to me, "I want to buy the book that you just read from with the honey chapter," and of course, it was just that was the only chapter and it wasn't, you know, no one had bought the book yet or anything. So I kept saying, Oh, that's a book that'll come out later. <laughs> and that made me think, you know, if that many people connected with that content so much, I should maybe consider, you know, moving on it. So it, it went from being one of many idea files to, you know, my polishing up the, the proposal, writing another couple sample chapters and then asking my agent to send it to, um, to the editors who actually did end up acquiring it. But yeah, it'll be I guess it's also an intuitive sort of spirit-led thing when you when something seems like the time is right or your interest feels really strong. I mean, I have probably a dozen children's book files next to me and you know, every so often I look through them and one might sort of pop out at me and say, "Yeah, this I'm ready now. You know, I'm, I'm I've been percolating over here and mm-hmm. uh it's time to pull me out." So Yeah, sometimes it's it's like that like an intuitive thing and sometimes a publisher will come and ask me to write something or um, solicit different ideas and through conversations with editors I get an idea for what's next, so Hmm. it happens in different ways.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for breaking that open. Yeah. Cause I think that's really fascinating. And a lot of people, myself included can just have such a different imagination about what the process really looks like. And it's nice to hear how you and your discernment and are again, listening both externally and inter- internally to get a sense yeah. of like, Oh, this is seems like the, the, creative juices go in this direction now. And I'm going to yeah, and and to see what people and
1: you know, for people like you who have a blog or for people who do public speaking or for you know, even if people have a smaller group, maybe they lead a book club or they teach a Sunday Mm. school class or whatever, they can be mindful about what makes people really sit up straight in their chairs and say, tell me more about that or or what makes people comment the most on their blog, what phrases or what ideas or what concepts really jump out at people. And I think we can be mindful of that too. And, and that's a, that's a way to put the ego aside as well. Cause you know, we might think this is my big idea and I've got to write about this one thing, but if everybody in our life is saying, tell me more about this other thing, mm-hmm. maybe that's what we should be focusing on in our writing work.
0: Mm, yeah, yeah, and to you know connect it to other fields and Christian discipleship even more broadly. If we're about the other and we're here to serve, then it can't be about the things that matter most to us, <laughs> right? And yeah. even though we might have a lot of passion or energy for something. There has to be this receptivity to, to the input and noticing what's really resonating with others, what others are needing and hungry for yeah. and what we can Well, offer. that's always a thing that when I'm starting a project
1: or when I'm working with like an editorial client, I always ask them or I ask of myself, what are the readers felt needs? Mm-hmm. Why do they need this book? And that's something you have to prove just on the sort of business side of publishing a book in the book proposal. That's an important component is to say here's why readers need this. And even if an editor loves the way you write and loves your ideas, that person still has to make a big argument to to the whole team of marketing and sales folks and everyone else of why this book is needed. And of course, they're looking at it from a business perspective, which is appropriate, but they are saying, if people don't need this, they're not going to buy it and if they don't buy it then we've made an investment in something that's not going to sell and they're looking of course at selling books. <laughs> so yeah, right, um, right. Yeah, so being mindful of how it's going to serve your reader and what is that what is your ideal reader's felt need is such an important part
0: of mm-hmm. starting a
1: project. Yeah.
0: Mm, thank you. Thank you. I'd love I'd love to go back to dimming the day in particular a little bit and invite you to read for us all right I'll start from the very beginning then
1: sometimes anxiety is a restless toddler overtired and squirming in your lap knocking up against you it grips your shoulders with tiny fists you try to speak calmly to it but there's no reasoning with anxiety you shift its weight your arms ache from carrying it for so long rocking you try to soothe it try to help it relax You want to ease it into sleep. You want to sleep. But being in anxiety's clutches and getting a good night's sleep aren't compatible. It's one or the other. And many of us spend many unhappy nights in anxiety's company. While we toss and turn in bed, disappointments, mistakes, and failures play over and over in our minds. The future is full of uncertainty, and we catalog everything that could possibly go wrong in our lives and in the wider world doom scrolling through headlines in the middle of the night, we bear witness to hatred inequality and environmental ruin. And just when things seem to be calming down or improving, our world is shaken up again. It's like we're living in a snow globe, a storm of sorrow and injustice ever swirling around us. We're holding on by a thread. I woke up yesterday to a short text one of my closest friends had written during the night. The timestamp was 2.50 a.m. Can't sleep. Everything feels so broken.
0: <sighs> Way to, like, capture the human experience, Jen. <laughs> I mean, really. <laughs> so well said. So beautiful. Yeah, thank, you. thank you. Yeah. And of course, it gets, you
1: know, I, I should say for anyone who has not looked at the book yet, introduction then takes
0: a an upturn
1: <laughs> to what we can do. Um, what we can do to, to address this.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And you offer some really practical solutions. So it's a gift. It's a gift. Thank you. Uh, I'd love to hear about your work of writing for children too. You mentioned it briefly, but what's your sense about what's needed now in children's literature? I specifically
1: have written a number of books, like in the spirituality space, they're not all Christian picture books, but they are i would say two of them really are a little blue bottle which is a book about grief for children and it does reference a bible verse that that is god collects our tears in a bottle so that one what i'm what i'm finding which is so funny is that over the years, whenever I've written in the Christian market or in the spirituality market, I'm always saying a caveat at the beginning of, you know, when I'm having a conversation with people, I'll say, you know, I'm not a theologian, but, and then I say something (laughs) and I feel like in some ways what I've learned is for better and worse, that is kind of part of my vocation is I think I am sort of a, Theologian. I mean, I, I'm writing about God. I'm writing, you know, my first picture book for kids is called Maybe God is Like That Too. Of course, that's theology. It's it's expressing sort of my take on,
0: mm-hmm.
1: on uh the fruit of the spirit. And I guess I what I'm seeing so specifically to the sort of Christian market, I think what's needed and what I've I've now had a lot more exposure to children's um, ministers and people who work with children in the church. And what they seem to be looking for are books that are inclusive, that are appropriate for progressive Christians or people of faith who maybe don't even identify necessarily as being Christian, but have spiritual curiosity. And they want to invite and welcome their children to have spiritual curiosity. But what they don't want are like, toxic messages about God or, you know, they don't want to burden their children with some of the things that they feel burdened by. So some of those sort of young parents in their 20s and 30s who may have left the church or they may have gone to a different tradition than the one in which they were raised, and they're looking for books that feel safe and that feel like They're giving their children an idea of a loving God. Those are the people I hear from the most are like progressive children's ministry folks and parents. And so I think what they're looking for is what I've been trying to do, which is create books that do talk about spiritual matters in a way that doesn't burden a child, but maybe makes them really curious about what the divine is like.
0: How much does paying attention to images of God or thinking about images of God influence your work? Do you find yourself regularly like coming to new insights about who God is? Yeah, well, I find, I don't know about insights, but I
1: certainly think about it a lot. There's a book, I wrote another book, uh, Beaming Books is the publisher who did Maybe God is Like That Too and Maybe I Can Love My Neighbor Too. And I have a third picture book coming out with them. I think it's not until 2023 but again, it's another one of a child wondering about God. I'm so taken with the way that children experience their lives. You know, little children and often picture books are written for say four to seven year olds or, you know, somewhere in that range. They're so literal. And so it's kind of hilarious when you hear some adults talking about spiritual matters or really any matters, and they don't realize that you know, a child is actually taking what they're saying literally, you know. <laughs> I love reading those, Like sometimes somebody on Twitter will do a thread of the funny thing their their kid said. It's almost always that they've said something to their child and that child has taken it literally and is upset by it or really confused by it. And so one I read recently was Someone said to their child, I hope all your dreams come true. And the little child looked really shocked and upset because he had had a dream of being chased by a bear. (laughs) (laughs) And so, I mean, I try to be mindful of of that and of both having fun with that and of kind of unpacking spiritual concepts Mm -hmm. in a way that kids can relate to and that doesn't just confuse them like that. So this book that I wrote for Beaming Books, and I don't even think it has a final title yet, but it's it's coming out in 2023. But again, it's about a kid saying, I ask all these questions, you know, and, he, and this child is asking very literal, questions to the adults in his or her life about God and the answers that are back, you know, given back (laughs) to this child or make absolutely no sense. But in the end, the child has some insights. And so it's the child who really understands. And I was sort of playing with the idea of, you know, when Jesus says, you know, such is the kingdom of heaven, you know, is the way children interact with the world. And so that's one thing I think about a lot when I'm writing a spiritual book, because I think What, in what ways are kids representative or more, more likely to be in the kingdom of heaven than adults. And I think part of it is like an openness and a curiosity and an honesty that for a variety of reasons, you know, adults sometimes cover over or stray from, or don't embrace, you know, I think there's an enthusiasm with little kids, a curiosity an openness
0: Mm -hmm. and,
1: and a real affection for, for life and for people around them. And I'm of course talking about kids who have not been, you know, traumatized in some way or, you know, those things, but a well-loved child has a beautiful perspective on the world. And so I try to sort of tap into that. I always look at when I'm starting a new book for kids, I I look again at like developmental charts and Mm -hmm. try to remind myself about where the mindset of, of the reader or the listener to this book will be.
0: Hmm. Mm. do you find yourself thinking a lot about how you were as a kid too yeah definitely actually i
1: heard at a children's conference a children's writing conference that i was a part of but i also attended matthew paul turner who has you know he's a best-selling children's writer a christian man and he talked about he he was speaking again to to people who write children's literature And he said this thing and I thought, wow, this is so insightful. But he said, you know, you have to find the pain that you had as a child Mm -hmm. and write for that child. And that wasn't something that I've really done yet. And it's not something that I really focus on. I think I am thinking about the children in my life or the children that I've known. But I think I'm also trying to address questions and knots of understanding that I need to untangle that that I experienced as a kid. Mm-hmm.
0: Your work does explore suffering though, and the mystery of suffering and the other parts of the human experiences that are mysterious. Mm-hmm. So, what do you want to say about that? <laughs> well, I think
1: I one thing I I know to be true and anyone who works closely with children knows this as well is that kids do grieve. You know, kids do experience real emotions and one mistake that I see some and I, I am in the position of seeing a lot of people's early drafts because I do editorial consulting or when I speak at conferences and people share their work. One mistake and this is I'm sharing this just for anyone who might be interested in writing for children is that a person like I'm in my 50s I think back on the books that I liked when I was little or what I would read to my children. I actually don't do this but what I see I guess people doing is they think, oh, children, they're just so sweet. And they skip through life and they, you know, they look at the sun and the moon and they're overcome with wonder. And (laughs) those things may or may not be true, but they also do have griefs. They have disappointments. They have losses. You know, their pets die. Their parents get divorced. They, you know, they get ill. They miss birthday parties. They have all these kinds of things that are real feelings and that are exactly as, as heavy and hard to uh, handle as the losses that we have as adults. So, So yeah, with A Little Blue Bottle, I really wanted to honor the experience of a child's grief and also show a model of how a parent might have a ministry of presence with that grieving child. So the mom in that book doesn't do a lot doesn't skim over doesn't tell the kid to buck up and not worry about it or whatever the mom sits with her and listens to her and puts her arm around this child who's grieving so yeah i do want to really dignify and honor the real emotions that kids have whether it's joy or or grief so Mm. yeah
0: Mm. yeah yeah oh Jen, there's there's so much that's fascinating about your work and and the ways that you serve the church through your through your creativity, and and I'm wondering how for, for you this all connects to your faith journey and what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Yeah, well, it's funny because you know I started writing for
1: adults. You know, both I was a newspaper columnist. I've written for different blogs. I've written lots of articles. I've you know, whatever, and then written a number of books for adults. And I guess maybe my faith is is getting to the simple basics more than, you know, I'm not interested in complicated theology. I'm not interested in arguing with people about any sort of theological argument, but I am interested in sparking kids' curiosity about the divine. And I'm interested in learning more myself about where God is working in the world. And I'm interested in having fresh eyes about that. And so I guess my faith journey keeps getting simpler and simpler from writing books that are, you know, a hundred thousand words long to writing books that are 300 words long, you know, (laughs) and and expressing some of my own hopes and thoughts about, about God and about belief in those more simple formats.
0: Mm, Hmm. Makes me think of that Quaker song. I think it's Quaker. Or is it Shaker? <laughs> of tis a gift to be simple? Yeah.
1: Yeah, I love that, too. Yeah. I'm not sure if it's Quaker or Shaker. Maybe they both claim it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, there is, the gospel is actually a pretty simple thing. It's And we do overcomplicate it with our, I don't know, our adult brains or opinions <laughs> <laughs> our egos, like going back to the idea of ego, you know, if if we're trying to prove ourselves to be
1: the people who are the right thinkers, then those people are the wrong thinkers, and they're then you know our ego is so tied up in it, and that's another difference than uh, the way that kids can think about God. I don't think they say, you know, oh, I had a spiritual
0: experience let's dissect it. And let me show you how mine was better than yours. (laughs) Right. And why it lines up with this theology instead of that theology. (laughs) and So Uh therefore this theology makes worse. No, it's just like, it is what it is. And it is good. I mean, it's, it's like the creation story in Genesis. Wow. Well, and
1: they can, and they also trust their experience, you know, and that's another, um, job that I think parents and and teachers and children's ministry folks and also people who write for children. We need to keep encouraging them to trust their feelings. If they're in a situation and intuitively it feels bad, they need to trust that. You know, I believe that is the Holy Spirit, you know, protecting them and and nudging them away from things that might be damaging. So many people who have left the church had the experience as children of saying, this doesn't feel good. And, and their parent or their Sunday school teacher or whomever told them that their feelings weren't valid, you know? Mm -hmm. And I, so I think we can continue to validate their intuition and their feelings and to listen to them instead of always telling them. I think it's funny when I, when I kind of glance at my books for kids, but I do use the word maybe a lot because I don't, (laughs) I'm not a person who pretends to be certain about any of this. You know, it's, I'm thinking, I hope so. And maybe, you know, in my <laughs> so that's, that's kind of what I suggest to kids. I don't say like, my book isn't God is like this. You better believe it. It's, you know,
0: maybe God is like
1: this. I don't know. Maybe not, but maybe. Yeah.
0: Well, it's a humility that invites a conversation and like you're inviting people into the wonder back to your, your premise that how important on wonder is for health and for Physical, mental health, as well as spiritual health, right? And to to arrive to this place of awe and wonder requires this, a great humility, and a smallness, and a recognition of like it's actually all mystery, and we can't pretend to have it figured it out. Here. Yeah, no, not at all. Yeah. Not at all. Yeah. And, you know, Jen, I know, you know, this, uh, message Jesus business is all about radical, uh, gospel living about radical discipleship. And so I'm wondering if some of what we're talking about here in this counter-cultural way of, of being open and maybe not falling into the polarities and the division that our culture is promoting. If for you, that's part of radical gospel living.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Well, and I think, you know, I actually spoke with um, a, a, it was a Lutheran seminary last, last week. And um, the person who was asking some questions about dimming the day said, in what ways might this book help to bridge divides? And because it's not a political book at all. It's, it's a book of, as you noted, like that's meant to Give people something beautiful and calming to think about before before bed, Mm -hmm. and and what I said to her was that you know things in nature we can all agree on. You know we can all agree that a ginkgo tree. Well, actually, some people have told me how much they hate ginkgo trees since I wrote this book. Um, (laughs) I personally think they're beautiful, but but we can agree that the redwoods are are beautiful and majestic. And so, you know, there's a lot of science in this book and there's a lot of information in this book. So people could have a conversation about a shared love for forests. Or one of the things I was trying to do with this book was when I was doing research on each of the topics and it's all these topics in nature, you know, hummingbirds, redwoods, ginkgos, many different things. But I sort of liked the idea of the person reading the chapter going, oh, I didn't know that. You know, like I, I, so I went deeper and I went kind of, I did a deep dive into each of these things. Mm-hmm. And so that's a conversation that two people who might feel divided around politics or culture or whatever, they could have a conversation about this book. They could talk about what things in nature make them feel a sense of awe and mm-hmm. where do they feel most comfortable in the natural world? Mm-hmm. You know, things like that. And so that could be a uh, a way of bridging divides is to show people what they have in common and one thing we have in common is if you're walking you know outdoors at night and you see a big full moon and it's shining down on the street most people (laughs) will look up and say whoa wow you know and that feeling of wow and experiencing that awe if you're walking next to a person with very different political views you can both agree on that (laughs) that's amazing you know
0: right right or we can all gather around and talk about dandelions <laughs> yeah, right right and and then we feel a connection with another human and we don't have to know like get all into arms about voting or something right so yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. and I think there's different I
1: think every you know you know you're at the fireplace you are welcoming activists and you are are uh encouraging conversation and, you know, all that. And I think we all have different roles to play, right? I mean, I think that this sort of activism or the sort of cultural and societal change that I've been a part of has been in different areas of my life. But in terms of my writing, you know, I think there's fabulous activist books that you can read, you know, and that's not, I don't think that's, you know, we're talking about vocation and purpose and all that. I don't think that's where I'm at least at this point in my career or previously, that's not what I feel like is my job. And so I can, you know, buy and read and promote books by people who are doing much more sort of overt activism. And I can love that and I can support that. But maybe my role is a different one. I think we all have different gifts to offer. And I think, you know, the gift that I've at least felt like I can offer is, Writing things that are either spark curiosity about spiritual things, or um, maybe give a fresh insight about something, or you know, point people toward beauty and nature and tell someone about a d- dandelion and how amazing they are.
0: Yeah, yeah, and that is so authentic, <laughs> <laughs> and it, you know, and it goes back to the tre- the freedom and the trust that you have. Like, I'm going to show up and I'm going to offer who I am and and what I can from this very real space of and not trying to force yourself into another box or conform to a label or something that people are projecting upon you. So yay, Jen. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Oh, okay. One last question. And I'm sure you're ready for this one. (laughs) What's messy about all this for you? Oh, different things are
1: messy. I mean, it's funny, you know, in my second book, um, which is called Momumental, the <laughs> subtitle is The Messy Art of Raising a Family, if I'm getting that subtitle right. But yeah, everything's messy about all of this, right? I mean, it's <laughs> it was messy writing Dimming the Day during such an uncertain and upside down time. It forced me, you know, to do each chapter has meditations um, to help people calm down. I had to do that prior to sitting down to write just to kind of get my brain in the right place to write about these things. So it was, it was messy and sometimes even felt, you know, ironic to be writing this very Zen <laughs> book about, about reflecting on nature when, you know, some days I was like, oh, what in the world is going on? You know, I I felt so upside down and heartbroken so many times during that year, as I think we all do still about so many things. So, so that was messy. The whole the whole book was very messy before I figured out how the chapters would be structured because I could see I knew that I wanted to present scientific information about each of these things and then I also needed to have sort of a relatable little story, but then I also wanted to bring in curated content like the naturalists and poets and so on that I bring in each chapter.
0: Mm-hmm. And then I
1: wanted a real meditation that people could do. And so for a while, I looked at all that and I, I I couldn't figure out how I would structure the chapters. Mm-hmm. And, and I also felt like, because I haven't, I'm not a yoga instructor or a meditation leader, I haven't led people through meditations before. And so it felt messy to include meditations at the end of each chapter. But I did actually um, hire someone who's done hundreds and hundreds of hours of classes and leading people through meditation, and I asked her to read that content and to tell me when things were out of order or if there was a line that instead of calming someone might activate feelings, you know? And so, so I did my homework, but it, yes, the whole thing felt very messy. And, and it was funny because it's not, as you know, you know, a huge book (laughs) and it felt like such an enormous undertaking, but now when I hold it in my hand, it just feels so little.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Jen, for exploring the mess with us and Radical Gospel Living and for all that you're doing to build up uh, the reign of God to to proclaim that nugget of truth that you're talking that I hear you proclaim that that uh, the kingdom of God is with with the children <laughs> and, and we can all be uh, childlike and experience more awe and wonder and meditate on the goodness of God's creation no matter who we are. Yeah oh. well thank you for having me and thanks for all that you're doing. My pleasure, my joy. Thanks Jen. Thank you. you to join me in this contemplative moment. Jen spoke about how being open to the thoughts and feelings of children helps her to view the world with fresh eyes and keep her faith alive. In the Gospels, Jesus mentions the importance of honoring children as well. I'd like to share a passage from the Gospels with you now. If you can, I invite you to close your eyes and breathe deeply as you listen and pray. Notice if certain words or phrases are capturing your attention. Is there a particular message that God wants you to hear today? A reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. People were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them, and when the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. Jesus, however, called the children to himself and said, Let the children come to me and do not prevent them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these." Amen. I say to you, whoever does not accept the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it. That's it for this episode of Messy Jesus Business. We're going to take a little holiday break to celebrate Christmas and New Year's. And we'll be back in your podcast feed on Thursday, January 13th. While you're taking some time away from Messy Jesus business, we pray that you are able to enter into the spirit of the season and find some ways to be generous of heart and mind and enter more deeply into God's goodness. Peace be with you all. God bless. Stay well. And we'll catch up with you in 2022. Messy Jesus Business is produced and hosted by me, Sister Julia Walsh, and edited by Cherish Bedzinski. You can find us online at MessyJesusBusiness.com and on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon. If you like what you heard, please be sure to mention our podcast to your friends and followers. And we'd love to have your support via Patreon. From the bottom of our hearts and the middle of the mess, Thank you. Messy Jesus Business is produced in partnership with the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration. You can learn more about our religious community and donate to our mission at www.fspa.org. I'm Sister Julia Walsh, and I'll catch up with you next time. Until then, peace and all good.